In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Lights be to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. Might solve a mystery or rewrite history. This is the story we need. It's a right as we kept out of sight for no more. So I'll read a book, or maybe two or three. It's such fun to hum a happy working song. Ooh, a happy working song. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's... It's not just in me, it is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney, your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, we are in for a treat as I interview Brendan Milburn, one of the songwriters for Toy Story the Musical, which played on Disney Cruise Line from 2008 to 2016. He's also responsible for co-writing songs for the Disney theme parks and even the Tinkerbell series of films, among other projects. And in this conversation, Brendan and I talk about his musical roots, his career trajectory, and what eventually led him to producing work for the Walt Disney Company. So let's get right into the interview with Brendan Milburn. Brendan Milburn serves as a composer and songwriter who has contributed his musical talents to many productions for the Walt Disney Company for well more than a decade now, including having co-written the music for Toy Story and the Musical, which will comprise a good part of our discussion today. Brendan has an MFA in musical theater writing from NYU. He's based in Seattle. And it's such a pleasure to have Brendan on Notably Disney to talk about the mouse, the music, and his current endeavor, um, as it speaks to on your website, of writing a song each and every week. Welcome to Notably Disney, Brendan. Thank you very much, Brett. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. As I was sharing with you a little bit before we started recording, um, I had first heard some of your work with Valerie about a decade ago at the first D23 Expo in 2009. It was just kind of this little event that Disney was putting on to try to cater to its fan community and bring in a lot of the great talent from the company. And that was my first exposure to both of you and the (laughs) Toy Story the Musical. So it was a blast. I remember it really stuck with me at the time how it felt like a relatively intimate venue was in a little presentation room. And I just remember just finding the music to be absolutely enchanting. Thank you so much, Brett. Yeah, I, I saw a photo of us with Joel McNeely doing the song The Claw just a few days ago. Um, I, I had forgotten how much fun that was until I, I dove into my archives to prepare for this podcast with you. Um, 
that was a really wonderful event. Um, the we didn't know what we were getting into. We didn't realize what how big a deal D twenty three was. I think maybe a week or two beforehand, somebody said, "Hey, would you guys like to come do a little presentation at this thing D twenty three? And we said, "Sure, what's that?" And then we got whisked down to Anaheim, and holy moly, there were a lot of people there. And uh, I guess we just didn't know what we were getting into. But yes, our the place where we got to do our little presentation was intimate. And it felt a little bit like a cabaret. And it was fun to show off the songs we'd been working on and share share our process of working on Toy Story the Musical with you guys. Well, it was a really special event in the sense that at the first D23 Expo, it was four days of content. These, these days, it's only three. But what was really special about that particular afternoon was that in that specific venue, I, I think it was right before you both um, were on stage. There was a whole session centered on Disney music and the theme parks. And there were a number of composers. And it was, I think I remember just like everything was so packed, but yet I think even went over the scheduled time. So it ended up being even longer conversations with all of you, which was just fantastic as a fan of Disney music and to see all of you um, up close and personal. (laughs) I'm so glad you... (laughs) It's it's very funny as uh, a boring uh, music teacher and father of three children to be thought of as somebody to to have somebody who is a fan express a fan like uh, sentiment to me. That's really uh, that's really odd. It's fun. I'm so psyched. You were so psyched to be there. I'm just a boring dude who writes music and changes diapers. Well, certainly the appeal to me, at least from from the onset, was the fact that Toy Story is my favorite Disney movie of all time. And to recognize that it was almost getting a twist through the introduction of this musical iteration on Disney Cruise Line. Um, And we'll we'll dive right into that shortly. But I'm interested, Brendan, if you could maybe share with me and our listeners a bit more about your musical roots and how you came to enter a career filled with songwriting. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I uh, I'm one of those people who's been completely gung ho for music uh, from the jump. Um, my father was a composer and a a professor of music theory and composition at uh, Rice University in Houston, Texas, and uh, I rem- one of my earliest memories is listening to the Beatles album Abbey Road that my dad had taped onto his reel-to-reel. And for some reason, he decided to leave the reel-to-reel really close to ground level in our living room. And I learned how to thread the reel-to-reel tape recorder and listen to like that, the, that opening of that album and that the drum fill at the beginning come together is kind of stuck in my my head with this sense memory of the smell of the reel-to-reel tape, the ferric oxide. And the because I was still in diapers, <laughs> the taste of the rubber stopper that held the tape reel on in my mouth. Like, I, it's, it's, it's my earliest memory, just listening to this music, watching those reels go around and getting kind of obsessed with with the craft and the technology of making music. Um, so by the time I was seven years old, I'd been 
like earning an allowance and spending all of it on used Beatles records. I think I had like their entire catalog by the time I was seven and just memorizing all these songs and trying to learn how to play them on a piano. And I didn't really discover musical theater until junior high when all the cool kids were going to Bay Area Youth Theater in Berkeley. And I wanted to be like them. And I'm not a very good actor, but I got into this uh, junior high production of Guys and Dolls and got completely sucked in. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Frank Lesser, but he is my absolute favorite musical theater composer. Um, Guys and Dolls is sort of his crown and glory. It's like this, this really perfect musical. Um, and he only did, I think, five or six musicals in his not long enough life, but I'm kind of obsessed with his stuff. Um, and I played in rock bands in junior high and high school, but I was also trying to break out of just what I, what I saw as the, the limits of writing songs about girls and high school and stuff like that. And I wanted to write a musical. So I conned a couple of friends in high school to do one with me. We, we, did an unlicensed adaptation of the Norton Jester book, The Phantom Tollbooth. And that was my final project in high school. And it was so much fun putting that together. I just, I was, you know, that's, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I did more musicals in, in college while still studying music theory and composition and getting a theater minor and studying theater history. And I went off to grad school immediately after college at uh, the only place in the country that gives you a master's degree for writing musicals, and that was NYU. Mm. While I was at NYU, I met Valerie Vigoda, um, who became my partner uh, in writing and in life for the next 20 years. And we, I joined her band, we started writing songs together, and I turned away from musical theater for about seven years. But uh, because I was so into her band and trying to make it as a rock star. And as we were sort of running out of steam in the trying to make it as a rock star direction, um, I she had been getting gigs with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. They're a kind of a heavy metal Christmas music presentational thing that tours the country every November and December. Oh, yeah. She she got to go and be the concert mistress for the West Coast tour for two years in a row in 2000 and 2001. Um, and we were having trouble with our band trying to get gigs during that time. And I went to go see her do it. And I heard all these songs strung together with kind of a threadbare plot and a little bit of poetry. I thought, man, we could do this. We could do a concert with a story. I have a master's degree in writing musical theater. So we started writing a show and um, we got, because of my connections at NYU, uh, the head of the, the department where I'd studied put us in touch with this woman, Rachel Schenken, who became our collaborator. And we wrote a show together called Striking 12, which is kind of a secular holiday show. Um, that retells the story of the little match girl, but there's a rock band on stage and that was us. 
doing the acting, the singing, and the storytelling. And that became the thing that our band was most known for. Like we, we just, suddenly we were getting success. Suddenly we had a record deal. Suddenly people started paying attention. And suddenly we did a presentation of that show Striking 12 in New York City in 2004. And somebody from Disney was in the audience. And uh, <laughs> we got a call about a year and a half later saying, hey, would you like to throw your hat in the ring to maybe be the team to write the songs for Toy Story the Musical? And we said, yes. Wow. My story in a nutshell. I was going to say, that's like several decades and several minutes. You, yeah. you said it all very concisely. I, I'd, love to, I'd love to dive into some of the different uh, pieces of information you shared. One of them being, you said, in your earliest years, you learned how to play the piano. Was that kind of your instrument of choice? It, it's it's just so um, it's it's got such instant gratification, you know. You you touch one of those keys and it makes sound immediately. With the guitar, the violin, the trumpet, there's so many more things you have to do to get some sound out of it. Um, it was just so immediate and direct to, to press a key and hear a sound and start to figure it out. So yeah, I've been playing piano since I was five, um, and. That's that's my primary instrument. Nowadays, I'm teaching kids how to play piano, guitar, bass, drums, how to sing properly, sing rock and roll without hurting their voices. But uh, yeah, piano is my primary instrument. And it sounds like, too, in terms of early musical influences, the, the Beatles was certainly on the top of your list. Were there other songwriters or groups that have kind of defined your particular musical style? Absolutely. Um, I was pretty obsessed with Billy Joel for a long time there. Um, I think a lot of a lot of people born around my time who were piano players came up just idolizing Billy Joel. I know Jason Robert Brown does. Um, and we have that in common. I was really obsessed with this kind of obscure rock band called the Rubenews from Berkeley, California. Um, my mom and uh my mom and my stepdad did publicity for them back in the 70s and the early 80s and i just loved their music and they've really stuck with me and later on i got really obsessed with a band called xtc and their primary songwriter andy partridge um he's just he's such a sensational lyricist and a really kind of outside, out-of-the-box composer. His Sometimes his songs are kind of difficult to listen to, but they reward repeated listening. He's pretty amazing. And I, at this point, I'd have to say XTC is my all-time favorite band. They're just wonderful. Very cool. Looks like I have to check out some new artists after we record. I'm wondering, Brendan, you, you had mentioned the notion of creating musicals in high school you said that like based on the phantom toll booth is that correct that's right so I, how did how did you go about the process of creating something based on pre-existing material but certainly with a, a musical spin because well, I, obviously that seems to have been you know eventually that would carry into your work for toy story as well absolutely i think by and large um you know, th there are exceptions to this rule, but 
most of the successful musicals and also most of the unsuccessful musicals of the past hundred years have involved adapting pre-existing material. Um, I, right now I'm thinking Dear Evan Hansen is a great example of uh, the opposite, um, but it's one of those right. exceptions that proves the rule. Um, Hamilton is, you know, an adaptation of, uh, you know, somebody's life or a biography. With the Phantom Tollbooth and with, with the Phantom Tollbooth, it's not actually a terrific, uh, <laughs> it's not a great piece to turn into a musical because it's an incredibly episodic story. Um, I think Leonard Bernstein ran into a similar problem with Candide. Um, and the my favorite my favorite musicals guys and dolls for example and uh sweeney todd all of these when they're based on pre-existing material there's a there's either a strong through line pulling you through the story with sweeney todd or somebody created one based on a bunch of disparate stuff like uh abe burroughs who wrote the book to to Guys and Dolls, looked at a bunch of, da of Damon Runyon stories and found a great through line within them and created uh, probably my favorite book from a musical ever for Guys and Dolls. It's just such a tight, well-constructed story. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, what an opportunity when there's some context that you can draw from, but also coming up with your own original spin as a songwriter. Absolutely. It's it's quite a privilege we were pretty blown away to be given the opportunity to to take a piece of intellectual property as beloved as toy story and turn it into song as best as we knew how um it uh, one of my first dates with with valerie when we were just starting dating uh was going to go see toy story the musical sorry <laughs> going to see toy story the movie back when it came out and really being knocked out by what a great story it was um i think in retrospect it's it's still such a great piece of storytelling it do doesn't really matter that it's an animated film the the spine the plot the characters the way it all hangs together is just so beautifully constructed um I think it's it's still one of my favorite films of all time. Well, let's then head down the Disney route and kind of leading up to Toy Story. D did you have a connection at all with Disney music growing up? I uh, like, I mean, I think it's hard to, to grow up in this country without having a connection to Disney. There's <laughs> even in, like I grew up in the 70s and the early 80s and the even then one of the, I think the first movie I ever saw was uh, a re Snow White when it came back into the theaters in the mid seventies, and I loved uh, the the Winnie the Pooh uh, cobbled together movie that came out I think in like nineteen seventy eight the one with all the songs yep. by the Sherman Brothers absolutely um, I just I I still love that one I, I I play it for my kids they're not as excited about it as I am but I love those songs oh my gosh those songs are so good um, I'm just a little black rain cloud hovering under a honey tree it's just so good um, and I remember buying the record album for with the story and the songs of 101 Dalmatians 
and playing it for kids at school uh, at the, the school sleepover. And nobody was as excited as I was about the song Cruella de Vil. Uh, I just like, I couldn't get enough of that. So yeah, the Disney, Disney music and Disney films were, were an important part of my, my early days. Um, so when, when we, when we did get tapped to be a part of the inner workings of the mouse, it was kind of, uh, awe inspiring and a little mind blowing. So, so let's explore that a bit more. You mentioned there was someone from Disney who had a uh, senior production and followed up about a year or so later. What was, do you remember the moment in which you and Valerie were tapped to potentially write the music for this Disney Cruise Line production? Uh, I do. And there was something, the, the thing that the, his name is Matt almost, and he still is a consultant for Disney. He, he saw us at this event in New York in October of 2004 um, called NAMT, N-A-M-T, the National Alliance for Musical Theater. And every, every year they present like a 45-minute reduction of eight different musicals. And we got to do one. And we were the only people where the band was the actors. <laughs> like people were filing into the theater waiting for the show to start and waiting for the actors to come out. And it turned out we were already on stage and we were the actors. So that was a, a, like, <laughs> a delightful surprise for them. And Matt almost was in the audience. And when we were done with our 45 minutes, we went out into the main hallway to greet people. And we had a stack of CDs and some business cards and they were all gone in 10 minutes. Like we were mobbed. I probably met Matt almost at that table, but I don't remember it because there were so many people. It was the, it was one of those weird, crazy, like career defining moments where you've done just the right thing at the right time and you're having the best possible effect you could. Like that, that one showcase that we did made our career possible for the next 10 years. It was crazy. And we, we went out to lunch after that. I think we'd done our our performance at 11 a.m. And so we were free by quarter after 12. And we went out to a Mexican restaurant. And I said, wow, I think something really big has just happened. Let's order margaritas. <laughs> and we did. Because we didn't have to perform again until the next day. And we just kind of marveled at what had just gone down. We thought, wow, it like, feels like the earth is shifting under us. And it kind of had. And so... I think it was like March or April of 2006, we got a phone call. Um, Matt almost had found, or I guess finally called us and said, hey, would you guys like to be a part of this? We're asking three different teams to write what they think would be a good opening song for a musical based on Toy Story. Why don't you watch the movie um, and see if you can figure out what you think the opening song should be? So we did that. Valerie and I wrote one. Um, it was called That's Why We're Here. And we made a demo. We had a, a couple actor friends come in and do some other voices for some of the other toys. But we we recorded it in our little rehearsal space and sent it in. And we didn't get it. And... I heard from Matt almost that the, the team that they had decided on was Sarah Schlesinger, 
who was the head of the New York University Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program. She was my teacher. <laughs> and her collaborator, Mike Reed, who's the guy who wrote uh, the Bonnie Rayet song, I Can't Make You Love Me. So these are people who are more experienced than us. They totally nailed it. And we said, okay, great. So couldn't have gone to a better team. Awesome. And then six months later, we get another call from Matt Almos. <laughs> he doesn't actually, he says, hey, can we, can I get you guys some coffee? He came to our house out in Brooklyn. He was back in New York for a minute. And he came to our house in Brooklyn and said, hey, so the other team backed out. Do you guys still want to do it? And we said, yes, of course we still want to do it. <laughs> so we were the second choice, but we we were the ones who ended up getting to do it. And it, like a huge whirlwind of Disney work started as a result of that. Wow, what an incredible story. So, right. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? Sometimes everything happens for a reason. And what, what an opportunity. Could you explain what you mentioned that you had to write a version of the opening song and the what you explained was that's why we're here which ultimately found its way in the actual production so yeah. what was the what was the process like of creating original songs because ultimately the only piece of music that was translated from the film to the stage was you've got a friend in me exactly we um we did a bunch of homework. We we listened to a boatload of Randy Newman because we wanted to we wanted to make an easy transition between "You've Got a Friend in Me," which was absolutely going to be in the show, to the stuff that we would be writing. So we wanted to make it sound like we were living in the same neighborhood as Randy Newman. Ultimately, some of the songs don't sound at all like Randy Newman, but I think we managed to capture some of his particular brand of wit and uh, vernacular. Um, one of the things we did for the song that we eventually wrote was we repeated lines like, mm, just because you've been, just because you've been beaten. Mm, so like taking a phrase and, and putting it in twice was something I remember distinctly hearing in a few Randy Newman songs. And I guess that just kind of seeped in. Another thing we did is we watched the movie like 15 times. And we outlined the whole thing and we tried to find the exact right spot to do the song. And there's a moment, um, there's a moment when Woody is, uh, during the, he's calling the meeting to let everybody know that Andy's birthday party has been moved to today and everybody freaks out. And it is Woody's job at that point to reassure everyone that they're not going to be replaced, that Andy loves them, that Andy's going to keep playing with them. And I think there's a line that where he actually says, hey, I, it's, uh, you know what? I don't remember the line. Hang on. Let me just see if I can find that file and play it here. Hey, listen, no one's getting replaced. Yeah. This is Andy we're talking about. It doesn't matter how much we're played with. What matters is we're here for Andy when he needs us, and he needs Right. What matters is we're here for Andy when he needs us. So that's that's why we're here. Um, it just it, it seemed like that that title was suggesting itself. And we knew that whatever this opening song was going to be, we were going to have to find a way to reprise it at the moment when Woody has his realization. And uh, while he's stuck underneath the crate in Sid's room 
and Buzz Lightyear has become completely despondent and feels like there's no purpose in going on with life. Um, we knew we were going to have to set Woody up with the lesson that he himself needs to learn when he and Buzz have that amazing scene where Woody does such a good job of convincing Buzz that life is worth living and that Andy loves him. And then Woody feels so incredibly depressed because Andy loves Buzz more than Andy loves Woody. At least that's what Woody thinks. And then it's Buzz's job to say, no, Andy needs us both. That's why we're here. Like we needed to line all of those blocks up in the process of writing this opening song. And so we had to do a bunch of planning before we could start writing. But uh, one of my favorite things about writing songs for characters and stories is is laying all this pipe ahead of time, you know, getting just doing the outline, getting all your ducks in a row and then trying to come up with the right hook that will work in both places in the show. Right. Well, and I feel like the best songs ultimately not only can surface in different contexts because of having that cohesive theme, but also really drive the momentum of the story. And I, I feel like that's why we're here ultimately is very effective in that regard. Thank you. Great. Me too. So how much creative license did you both have in terms of identifying? It sounds like you watched the film many times to figure out potential spots to incorporate original songs, but was there were there any limits in terms of how many songs where which characters would be singing things along those lines um there were some strange limits that i think because of i think there were financial reasons why we we were obligated to do no more than a certain number of songs um also there's you know it's a very strict time limit it shows that that ran on the the cruise lines can't be longer than an hour um so we had to take a 90 minute movie and add more stuff to it and condense it down to less than 60 minutes um but yeah there were pretty strict guidelines i think in the in the contracts that we signed we had to say that there weren't going to be more than seven or eight songs which is not the way that it usually works when you're writing a musical for the theater when you're not writing for Disney. <laughs> um, but uh, there, one of the things that's interesting about working for the mouse is that you find odd requirements in the assignments that you're given, and then you find creative ways to work around them. Um, we, I think we initially identified places for as many as 15 songs and we went through all of those song moments with the executives and the rest of the creative team to figure out which which ones most needed to be turned into songs. Gotcha. Well, one of the songs that came to fruition was The Claw. It's one that I always find myself laughing whenever I've heard <laughs> it or watched it on YouTube. Yeah. And one thing I noticed you, you mentioned earlier, Brendan, is trying to capture the essence of Randy Newman and one of those techniques being the repetition of words yeah. And with the song, not only is it the name of it, and it's a keyword that the little green men, the aliens, say all the time, but that comprises a lot of the lyrics. The claw! The claw! <laughs> We're just, yeah, that one kind of wrote itself. Those characters are so funny. And they're so, it's like, their whole religion is the big claw that descends from the sky. So it it was the easiest song to write in the entire show. 
did you know at the time that the aliens would be in the form of those adorable puppets? I did not. I, I, I made no assumptions about how the show was going to be directed. Um, I think Val and I would often have ideas about how things would look or feel, but um, we would sometimes make suggestions about that stuff to designers and directors. But one of our one of our features, one of one of our bugs and one of our features as songwriters is that we tended to focus primarily on just making the songs. Um, and it's, uh, it can be a, it can be a stumbling block or a failing, uh, as a songwriter for the theater. If you don't, if you don't keep in mind all of the rest of the way the show comes together when you are writing a song. And we did end up writing a few that got discarded because we came up with theatrical ideas that just simply wouldn't work on the boat. Um, but something about the the scene with the little green men, it just, if you do it with puppets, if you do it with humans, it just, it, whatever it is, the way to make it work is just to have them sing glorious harmony celebrating their deity, which is the descending claw. Love the description of that. <laughs> Could you maybe share an example or two of some songs or concepts that didn't materialize? Totally. Um, I think one of the most deeply satisfying scenes in the film as far as characters having different agendas and not being able to understand each other is the moment at the gas station when uh, Buzz discovers that Woody, sorry, when, when Woody discovers that Buzz is still alive and Woody is enthralled and says, okay, great. Now we can get back to Andy's and everything will be okay. And Buzz Buzz is certain that Woody has uh, that Woody set out to harm him, and they have a fight, and they roll on the ground underneath the truck, and sure. Buzz, Woody. This is this this is the moment when Woody discovers that Buzz just doesn't get that he's a toy. Like you're a toy, you idiot. You're not the real Buzz Lightyear, and Buzz is fundamentally certain that he is and that he has a mission to to save the universe from emperor zerg so these these two people have completely conflicting agendas and they will not meet in the middle and it's such a it's such a beautiful moment in terms of character and in terms of conflict and conflict is drama <laughs> it's one of the most dramatic scenes in the whole film and we tried to write a song for that. And the hook was, ah! <laughs> like they they would fight with tasty <laughs> lyrics over the course of a verse. And then the chorus was, ah! Repeated as they were rolling and, and fighting. And it just wouldn't work. It was imp implausible. And it wouldn't, we can't actually have somebody in a Buzz Lightyear costume rolling on the stage with Woody. Um, we had to find a way, a way through that. <laughs> without them screaming at each other and pummeling each other. 
uh, I'm, I'm disappointed that didn't happen. I, I would have loved to hear him sing, you are a sad, strange little man. <laughs> Something like it's that. It's a fun song. It's a fun song, but it's not a good song. <laughs> oh, well. Well, over how much time did you both actually have to craft these songs? What was your timeline like? We, um, we, I think we got... We got our f- f- complete first draft done between around August of 2006 and sometime in the spring of 2007. And that's when we, I think we went out to to Burbank and Glendale, California to do the first workshop sometime in 2007, I think. My memory is a little hazy on all this stuff, but I don't remember it lasting more than about six or eight or nine months. We would write a song and send a demo out through the interwebs and get a response from Matt almost and the rest of the creative team and keep writing and keep adjusting. And we worked our butts off to get everything ready for that first workshop. And it was a blast um, to see it begin to come to life behind music stands in a rehearsal room at uh, the Disney offices. Very cool. Yeah. Well, eventually, Toy Story the Musical would see the light of day playing on Disney Cruise Line, on the Disney Wonder in particular, right. for about eight years. Did you have an opportunity to see it in person? I got to be there twice, once during rehearsals, um, and then I got to see it again on the official opening day. Um, and so i i've only seen it live with the original cast then i got to see it on youtube a few times with like some of the replacements as the years went by um i i really liked it i i it's probably the most high profile theater thing i've ever done even though it was not terrestrial (laughs) it was on a on a boat um it was it was pretty glorious um, there was talk for a while of Toy Story being reduced even further to a 45-minute show and that it might go in and replace Aladdin. At, yes, uh, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, and we we went through uh, a rewrite process and a bunch of workshops at, at Disneyland, at in the, you know, the rehearsal halls down in Anaheim. And sometime... In 2009, I think, it was decided that we needed to pull the plug on that idea. Um, We were even going so far as to develop a possibility of doing a musical version of Toy Story 2 and doing that in rep at at California Adventure um, so that one day people could go see Toy Story and the next day they could go back and see Toy Story 2. we wrote two different versions of an opening song for Toy Story 2. Um, one of them is one of the, my favorite things I've ever written. Um, Matt, uh, Matt Walker, who's one of the main music people at Disney, st- loves the, the song we wrote for the opening of Toy Story 2. Um, and I <laughs> still plays it periodically. And he sends me an email saying, man, that song is so good. Um, and the... It just it just wasn't the right time for the organization to make something like that happen. 
And as we know, I think Frozen is still playing there now. Yeah, yeah, about yeah. three three years in its run now. Yeah. Yeah. So it's you know it's a very good choice. <laughs> well, um, yeah, and it's it kind of uh, it's it's a mixed bag because Aladdin was such a fixture at the park, and it was undeniably, at least in my opinion, one of the best productions that theme parks have created. Right. But that that Toy Story didn't have the opportunity to surface in the theme park context is also uh, really disappointing because it was lended to folks who were just on dcl right yeah i it was uh we were very bummed yeah we were very bummed but we we went pretty far along in the development process we had actors in not costumes but like uh we had somebody walking on big bouncy shoes inside uh uh sort of plastic puppet with no webbing on the outside to play the part of Rex running around and singing. Uh, we had like people inside, we were doing choreography, we were doing all of the work to make it happen. And then it needed to not happen. It was also a difficult time financially for everybody. If you recall, the year 2009 was a year mm -hmm. after the mortgage crisis in our country. And, yes. uh, it was, I think everybody just needed to tighten their belts a little bit. And that was one of the primary factors. But yeah, I, I don't know, man. I, I hope, I hope something more comes of it at some point in the future. Um, I, I sure loved working on it. But right before Valerie and I left New York City to move to Los Angeles, in, also in 2009, um, we, we had a meeting with the head of Disney theatricals, um, Tom Schumacher, and talked to him about Toy Story and saying, wouldn't it be great if it went to Broadway? And he said, no. <laughs> I think it wasn't his thing. I think he, wow. he did not think that it would be a terrific idea. Um, but he, he said he'd keep, we could keep the, discussing it, we could keep his options open, but as uh, as the years have shown, nothing has come of that as of yet. That's disappointing. I, I have to ask, though, because you brought up the point about having written a couple of songs for a potential Toy Story 2 musical. Mm -hmm. what, what would that have entailed? Well, it would have been another 45-minute reduction, to, so it could run five or six times a day at, the, at uh, California Adventure. But it would have given... Uh, it would have given song to another incredibly compelling story. I think that Toy Story 2 is such a heartbreaker, man. Yeah. That that Randy Newman song that Sarah McLachlan sings is so devastatingly awesome. It's one of my favorite moments in a in a Pixar movie ever. Um that that montage where we get the backstory is so good. Ah, uh, so we were really hot to trot to take this story about um about whether or not you choose like <laughs> i think the entirety of toy story 2 is about woody choosing to live an impermanent life where he will get played with and then eventually discarded rather than to choose to be perfect and always on display and never played with again. And it's, it's such a good metaphor for, for our existence. You know, you can, you can, 
keep yourself up on a shelf and keep yourself, uh, you know, away from harm, away from anything that makes you afraid, or you can dive in and <laughs> live life in all its glorious, beautiful messiness. Um, but I don't know. There was, there, it's such a good story. It's yeah. such a moving story and it, it, I feel like it begs to be sung. Absolutely. It's a, it's an extremely poignant film. It's also very hilarious and yeah. you have the likes of Zerg as Buzz's father. It's so, so good, right? That it's would good. have been perfect we, fodder for songs. You always have to have something funny that pops the balloon of uh, too much sentiment mm-hmm. or too much, <laughs> too much potential sappiness. And that film does that so beautifully. Yeah. Indeed. Well, and really recognizing that this just right around now is the 20th anniversary of Toy Story 2. It's amazing to think of these films in our culture for so long now. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about the, the just harkening back briefly to Toy Story the musical. Did mm-hmm. what what type of feedback did you receive on it from the public, from people who heard the music? The, you know what? I I haven't gotten a lot. I uh, <laughs> because I wasn't hanging around the theater. I never got to hear what people thought. And people seem happy with it. Uh, John Lasseter was involved in the process, and he was really happy with it. I've read some of the comments on YouTube and those people seem pretty happy with it. Uh, it's, it's odd having a show run in a place where you can't get to it. You know, um, it's one of the peculiar things about having a musical running on a cruise ship. Uh, it's sort of, it places a little distance between you and it. Um, for the songs that I've got in the theme parks, it's, People keep going, and uh, I don't know. It's it's they're a little easier to get to. Yeah. Well, I did have one question for you about uh, your theme park music. So I know on your website you mentioned that for Mickey's Royal Friendship Fair um, wow. at Magic Kingdom, that the on this day song that you wrote it over the course of forty five minutes during a bus ride in LA. Yeah. <laughs> Can you explain that? To go see a friend's show at Theater Works of Silicon Valley. And we had the assignment, and I had been mulling it over. Um, Valerie and I had already written some songs for the these these sort of you know these shows in the parks where we're going to do five songs from the Disney canon, and we need something to begin it and end it and tie it all together. And something about where we were with our lives. Um, Valerie and I had just broken up. I'd broken up with her. And the feeling of needing to... needing to, to, to find my own voice and express the things I wanted to express by myself, my own way, it's it... It's not entirely inaccurate to say that on this day, which plays at uh, Disney World every day, is a song about my divorce but <laughs> but uh it's i think underneath that it's a song about um it's a song about recognizing that each of us is a part of this web of interconnected humanity and there are things that make that 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 tie us all together and and 
we are all unique individuals, but we are all part of the same messy, beautiful team. And it was very strange and painful and wonderful that right before uh, right before the opening of that show with that song, there was that uh, shooting in Orlando. And I remember thinking, wow, that is so awful. That is just one person like deciding that that another group of people needs to be eliminated is just so exquisitely wrong. And it felt so good that this song about unity and and uh, finding the common ground in all of our stories as we tell them was going to, I don't know, put something of a Band-Aid on that situation in Florida. Um, it made me feel a little bit better about that horrible event. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. What significance? It's interesting that you talked about the notion of the interconnections across lives and stories, because I think really that's the epitome of a lot of the stage shows at the castle, where it's, you're blending all of these different stories across Disney's worlds. But right. that opening or closing song is the thread that ties it all together. Exactly. I was sitting on the bus and I just came up with, we are links in a chain made of silver and gold. We are, <laughs> I don't even remember the rest of it, but I just, it all spilled out so fast. And sometimes when you're going through a lot of personal turmoil and feeling a lot of really big stuff, that's when the songs come most easily. And that one did. Yeah. Fascinating. So could you share before we conclude with some final questions, what's, what's new and next on the horizon for you? Um, I just keep writing. I can't stop. Um, I, uh, I'm in this goofy headlong quest to put out a song a week, every week from my 45th birthday until my 50th. And, uh, I'm getting on towards 59. I'm, uh, I, I will conclude this crazy project in August of 2021. And I'm also, uh, writing a bunch of other fun stuff with some local collaborators here in Seattle. I am arranging and orchestrating a show for Seattle Rep called Shout Sister Shout, which is a sort of biographical musical about Sister Rosetta Tharp, who is kind of the, the godmother of rock and roll. She did this kind of wonderful gospel tinged with blues and rock and roll, and she had this amazing way of playing electric guitar which really inspired people like jimmy page and uh, jerry lee lewis and elvis she was just an astounding person um and i've become such a rosetta tharp fanboy in my process of researching and learning how she played and learning how to do justice to her songs arranging them for the band that's going to play this show um not anything I ever expected I would do, but then similarly, I didn't expect that I would ever be writing Toy Story the Musical. So, you know, you take what comes and you throw, you do your very best for each of these projects. And I am having a great time with it. Sounds fantastic. Well, I'm, I've definitely enjoyed learning more about your experiences um, in so many different venues from the stage to the theme parks and and all these different avenues. So it's it's been quite a pleasure to learn more about your career. 
I'm so glad, Brett. Well, we reached the point in our conversation where we conclude every episode with some Disney-related questions that I ask all of my guests. So we call this segment uh, Per Ariel from the Little Mermaid. Ask my questions and get some answers. So this includes three standard music-related questions, two two book-related questions, and one random Disney question. So there's no right answer. It just comes down to your experiences and your opinions. Okay, sounds good. So first on the musical front, and I know you talked about this a little bit earlier in our conversation, but what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Aha. Well, either 101 Dalmatians or The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Both fantastic choices. What Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, given that I uh, <laughs> given that I, I teach a lot of young people at the School of Rock, um, one of my voice students, oh, you know what? This, this might not quite qualify, but um, my son was obsessed with the Disney TV show, Good Luck Charlie. Sure. And the theme from Good Luck Charlie, uh, Hang In There Baby, is one of his favorite songs. And he was having a really, really hard time uh, with the transition to middle school, and he got really, really, really low, really down. And I wrote him a song called Hang In There Baby Redux, where I quote the lyrics of that theme song and make it into a song about him. And he loved it. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about Hang In There Baby as sung by, as sung by Bridget Mendler from Good Luck Charlie. Well, that has to represent one of the most unique uh, answers I've heard for that. But I, I love the notion of creating your own spin on it, too. Yeah. What what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Oh, that's a good one. Um, my first thought is that Princess and the Frog has not gotten enough love. Um, I remember being pretty knocked out by it when it came out and thinking that it wasn't getting the wasn't getting its due. Um, and let me think. I think that's my answer. Yeah. Perfect. I, I would agree that that felt, and that also um, is celebrating an anniversary this year. It turns 10 years old. And it's a great one. What is the most recent Disney book or Disney related book that you've read? Hmm. Interesting. Um, or at the very least one that stands out in your mind. I read Disney war about the, what was going down with Eisner uh, and his his eventual ouster from the company, and it was a fascinating read. That's that's a definitely a, a contentious book for sure. <laughs> Brendan, if you could write a Disney book on any topic, what would it be about? Um, Fictional or nonfiction? I would probably write a a combination handbook of how to write songs for animated movies with a little bit of biography about how I got into writing songs for Tinkerbell and how I gently got out of writing songs for Tinkerbell. Um, 
it's a really interesting part of my life and uh the process of writing songs for those four tinkerbell movies was a real eye-opener for me um and i learned a lot about how animated films are made and i learned a lot about myself and my own shortcomings and failings and i think i'm now a much better collaborator and a much better <laughs> a much better person having written a bunch of songs and kind of slammed up against the wall of how the how the creative process works within animation hmm That'd be yeah. that'd definitely be a fascinating read. So your random Disney question. So this mm -hmm. one I'm only asking you is, and I haven't asked it of any prior guests and probably not any future guests. What Disney stage show, whether it be on Broadway or another avenue, have you most enjoyed watching? Oh, good question. Um, my favorite was watching my son Moe's appear in the little kids version of beauty and the beast when he <laughs> got to sing be our guest he was a he was seven years old and he, <laughs> he was hilarious and terrific oh that's sweet yeah finally how can listeners get in touch with you um they can find me at brendan is making a song a week.com they can uh find me on youtube uh i think Brendan Milburn or Brendan is making a song a week. Um, and uh, they can probably find my email address with just a little bit of digging. They can leave a, a message at the website or whatever. Um, I uh, occasionally, like maybe once a year, get to do a concert. And it's always a, a delightful and really fun way to get back, dip my toe back into the world of performing and and connecting with audiences directly. Um, my days of being in a rock band and touring around the country are long gone. Now I'm a stay-at-home stay dad and a music teacher, but um, every now and then I get to get out and play and sing and meet with, meet with old friends and new. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Thanks again for coming on Notably Disney. It was really great time chatting with you and talking a lot about Toy Story the musical. It's a, it's a part of the Disney catalog that hasn't gone a ton of attention, but I, I'm glad you were able to shed a lot of light on its evolution and history and your career in the process. It's my pleasure, Brett. It was a delight talking to you. Thank you so much. And thanks again to Brendan Milburn for joining me on Notably Disney. So fun to talk with him and learn more about the history of Toy Story the Musical. And on a forthcoming episode of Notably Disney, we will be joined by his songwriting partner, Valerie Vigoda, who was also responsible for the music for Toy Story the Musical and Tinkerbell films. So look out for that on a future Notably Disney. And thank you again, Brendan. Really appreciate your time. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, 
and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.